The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And again, a big welcome and a special welcome to anybody who's new online or here in the building for the first time. Make sure to check in at the end if you have any questions about the community, people online, you could just reach out to the office. Robin, our office manager, is on retreat for another two weeks, but Shelley or I are around and will respond if you call in or send an email in. And as I mentioned, um, part of what we're doing these next few weeks, maybe even a couple months, is looking at this set of teachings. And there there are really three ways of perceiving any experience, whether we're formally meditating or just out doing our day, and learning to perceive the truth of change. So whether you're now sensitive to your visual experience or your auditory experience or your sensations in your body or the activity of your mind. What we're trying to learn is, because we, we have a bias that we don't, you know, this is the thing about biases, they go unseen unless we illuminate them. Well, one of the biases we have is this projection of permanence. Like, I'm at common ground. Like that idea, I'm at common ground meditation center, seems like a fixed truth. But whatever it is, being at common ground is full of change. It's not a thing. There are no, like in a Buddhist framework, there aren't any nouns. There's just activity. And so can we learn to live that way? Whether we're seeing, I mean, seeing is our predominant experience or hearing or feeling sensations or awareness of our thoughts, mental activity. Can we notice that it's unfolding, changing, lawfully. And it's a real uh, reconditioning because of this bias towards permanence. The Buddha calls these biases the four distortions. And they're distortions in terms of how we perceive and how we think, you know, and then how we believe or view and, and they're just sort of different levels of ossification, like perception is pretty fluid. You know, I could perceive something one way in one moment and differently the next moment. But if, I, if I'm kind of convinced common ground's a boring place, then the perception, because now I'm thinking, I've got that idea, right? So then that affects my perception, so then more and more, every moment I'm at Kamagun, I'm going to perceive it as, oh, this is boring, right? And then if that idea, if that way of thinking that Kamagun's a boring place goes on long enough, it becomes an established view or belief in the mind, and it, it just goes on seeing. So that's sort of when the bias becomes hidden, right? I don't even realize, you know, and if someone said, hey, you know, I went to Kamagun, I thought it was so nice, it's like, oh, you idiot. You know, because we're so, it's like an unquestioned truth. Common ground is a boring place, or something like that. And we do this all the time about 
groups of people. You know, this is where racism, sexism comes in around class, around body size. I mean, around anything. You know, we see somebody with a high school sweatshirt on, you know, and we think, oh, I know, you know, those guys are jerks. They went to Henry High School or, you know, whatever. It's one of the high schools in Minneapolis. So the three characteristics of this teaching, we're using these three perceptions of change and of seeing that experience, because it's partly because it's changing, it's unfixed, it can't really satisfy me in a lasting way. And, the, and you know, we have absolute proof because we have had a lot of nice experiences and is anybody in the room, this is your chance, fully, completely satisfied? <laughs> raise your hand. <laughs> you, you guys can raise your digital hand online. <laughs> no, we don't raise our hand because even though we've had a lot of satisfying experiences, they weren't satisfying in any lasting way. So next time we're going to have lunch or next time we're going to do something we want to do, can we have that perception? Oh, I get to do this nice thing, but it won't be ultimately satisfying. I may fall in love, but it won't be ultimately satisfying. You know, I may, because I'm cold, put a sweater on, but it won't be ultimately satisfying. It won't make me happy in a lasting way. I'm still, I'm still going to go put a sweater on if I'm cold, or fall in love, or whatever, if the conditions are right for that. But because we're working with this perception of, it sounds a little grim, but just kind of hold it uh, appropriately, because I'm working with this perception of unsatisfactoriness, that is a teaching for us deluded people who imagine that things are satisfactory in a way that they're not. In fact, all of the Buddha's teachings are for deluded people. They're not teachings for wise people. Wise people don't need teachings. I, some of you have heard this because it's, it's funny, but uh, our former uh, office manager and one of our teachers here, Gabe Calaflores, and I were brainstorming. This is a number of years ago. Like, we thought, oh, we should get our act together and have Common Ground t-shirts or sweatshirts. And we think, well, what would we have on it besides, you know, the name of the center? And I thought, well, a great name would be um, Skillful Means for Deluded People. Because <laughs> that's what the Buddhist teacher teachings offer. It's like, he uses that phrase, skillful means. And all of the teachings, they're not metaphysical truths that the Buddha's teaching, but just seeing the impermanence, seeing the unsatisfactoriness, and seeing the impersonal nature, like learning to use those perceptions, that way of perceiving. See, in fact, if it's true, like the Buddha suggests it is, that it's skillful to perceive that way because it's a counterweight to the opposite bias, to see things as being permanent when they're not, satisfactory when they're not, and personal when they're not. Right? Isn't that true that, like if I did something humiliating right now, 
the habit of my mind would be to take it personally. You know, if I burped or something like that, passed gas, and I take it personally, but it's not really personal. I mean, it doesn't mean I shouldn't take responsibilities for what I do or what my body does, but it's not really personal. You know, given everything in motion, it couldn't have been other than the way it is. Same with even something that is seemingly very personal, like I'm thinking this despicable thought now about somebody in the room or somebody online, you know. And uh, it can seem like, well, that's personal. You're, you are doing that. Like there's, a, there's somebody back there in the control center doing that bad thing. Have you ever found that permanent entity back there? We don't. We just find natural processes. Wherever we look, internally, externally, we tend to impose self on others just like we do it on ourselves. But that's just because of the superficiality of the way we show up, we pay attention. We're mostly paying attention, strongly affected by these underlying biases of permanence, satisfaction, self, and beauty even. Like around things that we think are beautiful. But you know, beauty, and, and you could throw ugliness in here, you know, they're just constructions. You know, we see a beautiful sunset, that's the West, and uh, you know, what is it exactly about the sunset that makes it beautiful? It's a construction. It's just what it is. And I'm not saying that we should change it, oh, it's ugly. That would be just a different fixed view. The Buddha has a way like a, a practice to, uh, with our bodies to, because you know, we, where, we, where this causes a lot of suffering is around how we look at bodies, our own and other people's bodies and sexual attraction. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not so much that we want to be disgusted by our body or by other people's bodies, but we also don't want to be enchanted by our body or other people's body. Look at me. <laughs> I'm sure we've all had moments, you know, depending, for some of us, it's just like looking at certain parts that we, the one thing that we're okay with, you know, good ankles. <laughs> <laughs> But whatever, however we get enchanted and or disgusted by bodies, bodies in and of themselves are neither actually disgusting or enchanting. They're just bodies. And if you have the, you know, the opportunity to do a autopsy, uh, when one of our teachers, my partner and uh, the other co-founder of Common Ground, uh, she teaches, uh, has taught at McAllister College where she works on experiential anatomy class. So one thing she did as kind of training for that, this a number of years ago, is uh, somebody does uh, training with autopsies and bodies, dead bodies that haven't been preserved in any way. So they're, they look and feel more natural. So it's, and they keep them refrigerated. And it's a week long thing where a group of eight or so people and this one teacher uh, dissects two human bodies. And it's like once you get 
you know, open it up, there's not a lot of difference <laughs> between bodies, you know. And even, you know, skin is skin, you know, and hair is hair, and nails are nails, and, you know, flesh is flesh, and tendons are tendons. And so this is the thing that this last piece, this distortion around separating things into ugly and beautiful, that's just habit. And it's, it's, it's not like we're going to lose the ability to know the difference between food I like and food I don't like or, you know, a room that I'm comfortable sitting in and a room I'm not, don't feel safe sitting in because it's so disgusting. I mean, we'll still be able to navigate and do our life, but we won't be confused when we, we'll still use the word beautiful, but we won't be confused by that word. And we might use the word disgusting, but we won't be confused. We won't think that there is something essentially disgusting about dog poop on the sidewalk. Right? It's not actually disgusting. It's just the pain if you step in it or you have to smell it. Or, But even that, that smell or that scraping of your shoe, whatever it might be, that's just that experience. And is it do we need to have a fixed idea that it's disgusting? Like I mentioned uh, maybe last week too, but I've had some real pain in my mid-back here. Could be kidney stone, I'm not sure yet. I've been to the doctor, nobody seems to know yet. Um, but it's been a real interesting challenge. And it's been so interesting just to watch this, like part of this presumption, like this would be discussed at the disgusting end of things. And uh, it's like, oh, I should have this view, like my life is hard now, because I have this, you know, really flinching pain every once in a while, like when I breathe in deeply, or cough, or sneeze, or move a certain way. And, uh, oh, so this is bad. And then, but I notice like when my mood is elevated and I'm happy, it's like, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't fit. You know, I'm in a bad mood because I got this, you know, physical ailment I'm dealing with. But the thing is, it's neither constant, it's not self, it's neither good nor bad, it's just the territory or the conditions that are unfolding right now. And me navigating the conditions doesn't depend on me telling myself this is good or bad. That doesn't, that kind of defining it in a fixed way as bad doesn't facilitate me living my life. Should I go back to the doctor? Should I put heat on it, ice on it? Should I take ibuprofen? Should I, you know, all those things that calling it bad or calling something beautiful doesn't really help us just take care of the business of life. So as our homework, and you can, those of you who stay here in person or online for the small groups, by the way, we always have about a 15 minute opportunity to connect with a group of three or four community members at the end. And it's just up to you if you want to stay for that, but just keep that in mind. and. If you immediately think of that as being disgusting, because <laughs> that's your hidden bias that, you know, that kind of exposure in a small group 
for people I don't really know. No way, right? Then just look at that. Because right? one thing, the 15 minutes is a changing thing. It doesn't last forever. It's not like you're condemned to being in a small group forever. But anyway, <laughs> one of the things in those small groups you can talk about is like how you notice these four distortions. Or the Buddha, another way it gets translated, four perversions of perception, cognition, and view or belief. So, you know, perception is a little more loose. Once we start thinking about it, it gets more sticky. And once it becomes an underlying belief or a fixed view, it's, it takes time to uproot that. you got to really work at it. And that's what we're doing now because these four ways of perceiving, ways of co uh, cognition, ways of believing, permanence, satisfaction, self, personal, and beautiful, or beautiful and ugly. Because we should just presume we have these four distortions operating in the way our mind hard works. Then we have to take the medicine. So a lot of uh, the early Buddhist tradition, we see the Buddha as a doctor, right? He's got the medicine, he's got the teachings, which are counterweights to the distortions, right? That's what I mean. People who don't have distortions don't need the medicine. People with distortions need the medicine. So we, we're training our perceptions, our way of perceiving, our way of thinking, and our way of viewing things, believing. Instead of having fixed views, right? we're aligning our way of being, of perceiving, thinking, viewing, with the way it is. That word we hear sometimes, dhamma or dharma, that just means the way it is. And we want to align with that. So we'll be spending, you know, the next few weeks especially looking at impermanence and just making it a good friend and, and really getting better at keeping that perception in mind. Whatever's happening, doesn't matter what's happening, whether you're sitting or doing your day, is whatever it is that I'm noticing, is it, it doesn't have that characteristic of change. Is, could it be accurately experienced as a flow, a movement, something that's conditionally unfolding. Like right now, whether you're tuned into what I'm saying, that's something that's unfolding. It isn't a fixed thing, Mark's Sunday talk. See, the words make it seem like a fixed entity, but the talk itself is a happening, it's a process. It keeps changing before we can grab onto Mark's talk, it's already something else, right? Because it's an unfolding process. Same with the mood, you know, we think, oh, I have a depressive mood today, or I'm a happy mood today. But it isn't a, our mood, whatever it is, it isn't a thing. It's like weather, you know, we could say, oh, the weather's nice today, it's cold, but it's clear, clearish in Minneapolis. And uh, we could, but it isn't a thing, even though it, kind of has that appearance, but it's in motion, whatever the weather is, right? It's always becoming otherwise. Can we perceive that? You go home to a place you've lived for a while, it can feel, seem like a fixed entity, but even that is changing. It's getting dusty for sure, 
right? And, you know, it's just like falling apart or it's, it's just doing what things, everything does that unfolds. And any conception of myself, we're changing process too. But isn't it funny that we just, like if I have a memory of my teenage years, oh yeah, that's me. But really? I mean, clearly there's some connection, right, between that memory and what's here now. But it's not, but we just carelessly have this fixed idea of the me that was a teenager at one point and then, you know, now in their 60s or whatever. But that's just habit. And it's a distorting habit. It really affects happiness and unhappiness, these biases. So that's why the Buddha recommends these teachings on the three characteristics of change, of unsatisfactoriness, and impersonal nature. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Some of you like the Pali, which is similar to the Sanskrit language, and the early Buddhist teachings are recorded in the Pali language, one of the languages spoken in northern India 2,500 years ago. And then over the centuries, these early Buddhist teachings were recorded, and you know the nuns and monks would memorize them. And, and this way, the teachings are still available, you know, imperfectly, of course, but still useful for us today, this really wise person. And then, of course, we have this opportunity to replicate the same insights. Common Ground is a Vipassana meditation center. This is sort of what we call the early Buddhist movement here in the United States coming out of Theravada Buddhism. We often refer to it as Vipassana meditation or insight meditation. That's what that word means. And when we talk about insight, we're really talking about seeing, experiencing, awakening to what we haven't seen before. Right? So it's, it's that deeper, you could say, spiritual learning or insight. And it's always surprising because, as I often say, you know, we could have really heard what the Buddha says about impermanence and unsatisfactoriness, experience can't satisfy in a lasting way and the impersonal nature, stuff happens, but stuff happens because of causes and conditions. It doesn't really refer back to a permanent me or a permanent you. It certainly seems that way, but that's because of these distortions. That when I do something really great, it seems like I've been great, right? <laughs> it really feels that way, when, you know, that sense of you know, not even unskillful pride, but just that sense of like, oh yeah, that was good, I did well. But there isn't a somebody who did well or is great. There's just that feeling being known. And that feeling is a changing process. So I'm not saying there isn't pride or there isn't a good feeling. It's just an invitation to see what that feeling is. It's something that arises due to causes and conditions, and it doesn't like arise and then is there in any sort of set way. It's just always unfolding to the next, whatever's next. So we're using these perceptions, <clears throat> these skillful perceptions, 
to learn how to be more intimate. So when we get these teachings from the Buddha about impermanence and unsatisfactory nature and the impersonal nature, it isn't so much that we're trying to see impermanence or we're trying to see that this, you know, like I'm eating my lunch and I'm going to really key in how unsatisfactory it is. I'll put more butter, but still, still not there. Now I ate too much, so now it's unsatisfactory. It's not like we have to go looking for those three things. It's more like we want to be, the desire is to be intimate, to be connected, to be connected in a way that's freer of distortions, of biases. And these three perceptions are just in the service of being real with our experience. Don't make a big thing about impermanence, because generally when we do that, it's because we've gotten intoxicated with the idea especially when you catch yourself wanting to tell other people, everything's impermanent, everything's unsatisfactory, and everything's not self. Why are you taking that so personally? Don't you know the Buddha says that everything's not self? You know, you idiot. And it's, it's like we do, we do that to ourselves, we do that to each other. But that's kind of a very superficial understanding. That's why we call these teachings skillful means. They're a tool to use to correct the bias. And the bias is always here. We're responsible for the biases here. <laughs> and then we can take, you know, support others by modeling taking care of our own biases. How we aren't seeing things as they are. How we project permanence when things are impermanent. We project satisfaction on experiences that aren't actually satisfying in any kind of lasting way. You know, when we, for those of you who are single and interested in having a partner, when we imagine or have a prospect, we imagine the kind of satisfaction I'll get from that experience is going to be lasting in a meaningful way. Those of us who have been in long-term relationships <laughs> or are currently, we can tell you that even the really wholesome relationships don't make us satisfied in a lasting, permanent way. <clears throat> One of the real glues for long-term relationships is being honest about that with each other. You know, initially I thought you'd satisfy me, but I realized that it's just not possible for another... That's putting too much on our partners, on our lovers. Okay, here's the deal. Can you imagine if we said this at our wedding dates or whatever? Okay, here's the deal. You've got to satisfy me. <laughs> Are you up to the task? <laughs> Nobody would take that on. You know, it's a setup. No way can I satisfy you. It's just not going to happen. But I can be, I can do my work to be more real about what it's like to be a human being and maybe to, you know, if I bring enough integrity to that task of being real, maybe it will support you in your task in being real with your life. And in that way, we might actually be good friends, you know, and maybe have sex. I mean, but, but the thing is, that too is not going to be satisfying. And this is another one of those myths, you know, some physical experience, whether it's sex or a good massage or 
a good meal or a vacation, a job promotion, retirement, people my age, oh yeah, when I retire, you know, that's going to be satisfying because I won't have to go to work or whatever we imagine. Having kids, having the kids grow up, <laughs> you know, or whatever. So remember, we're just trying to be real and the experiment like with our homework these weeks and uh, just as a reminder, I put in the chat for the people online the handout that has some readings that will support you. For people in the room, you can get the same Google Doc with the different articles by going to the calendar for this uh, Sunday morning event and there's a link to the Google Doc there and you can get the articles that way. You can also get a copy of the chant, the Five Remembrance chant that we did at the beginning there. And the idea then is just to see if these perceptions help you become more intimate. Because that's where the real, according to the Buddha, that's where real freedom, real peace lies. It's not distancing ourselves from the messiness of life, but somehow learning how to be more real, more connected. We value sensitivity as hard as it is to be a sensitive human being. There's no other way forward. Because, you know, nobody, maybe I made this sort of joke last week, but nobody's going to write a self-help book. You know, the ticket to real happiness, disconnection, superficiality, you know, and denial. That's the way. Because we all know better. And one of teacher that was inspiring for me, Tony Packer, um, she started out in the Zen tradition, but then just didn't like any of the, you know, any of the sort of confines of a tradition. Sometimes she would allow people to call her a sort of an awareness teacher or something like that. But anyway, she's dead now, but started a center in upstate New York called Springwater. But I, one of the lines I love from her teaching is something like, nobody ever consciously chooses numbness. Or we could say, nobody ever consciously chooses to be disconnected. We fall into that habit, like of pain, emotional or physical pain is overwhelming, we'll withdraw, right? We'll turn away, we'll bury it if we can, because it's too much all at once. But that's just a reflex, a human reflex, kind of a survival reflex, when something's overwhelming is to kind of shove it away or shove it down, bury it. And eventually, you know, we have to process that. We do that with grief, don't we? If there's a sudden loss, we can't, often we can't just feel the enormity of what's moving when there's a sudden loss. So we take it in gulps, in little bits and pieces, until there isn't anything more to open and, and sort of allow to move through us. But we wouldn't, we don't want to make numbness a strategy for living. Right? I mean, we do, we see that all the time. Sometimes it's us, sometimes it's others, where we're in a pattern of watching too much TV or drinking too much or using drugs because we've fallen unconsciously into the habit, I just can't be in the middle, open, sensitive, with that breath 
and depth of sensitivity. I just flinch. I just can't handle it. So we start making, getting into the groove of whatever we use to distract ourselves. Until fortunately, hopefully, something wakes us up and we realize the dead end of that strategy. So that's why we need these teachings and these practices because we have to find ways to turn our life back in the direction of sensitivity, wakefulness, exposure, being right in the middle. And, and then you see it, it starts to make so much sense because then we realize, oh, and to do that I have to be relaxed. Because in any way that I'm defended or controlling, I'm not really going to connect. I'm not really going to be intimate. And that makes intuitive sense that the way forward involves a lot of tension and contraction. That just doesn't make sense. That somehow the, the way that we practice the means is somehow not in alignment with what we aspire. We don't aspire to be tight. We aspire to be released and at ease and relaxed, right? I'm assuming. So why would we presume that the way forward towards that goal of being released and relaxed is to be tight. But think about any ordinary day. How many times do we justify being tight? We rationalize it. Of course I'm tight. You know, if a friend says, you seem a little tight, maybe you should relax. Can you relax? And we can get offended. Like, well, of course I'm tight. This is what's happening. Don't you realize my life the way it is? Of course I'm tight. Of course I'm upset. I have to be. And the thing is, that's a fixed view. And everything has to be seen as something fluid. But the, these ideas we tend to cling to, right, it's, it's synonymous with that permanent sense of self. It's that permanent sense of self that has fixed views. So that's a clue. When we notice others and ourselves with fixed views, oh, that's that distortion of taking things personally. And, that, and the characteristic of someone taking things personally is having fixed views, fixed beliefs. And it seems like, well, how can I live without some opinion or some point of view? But see, it's not about not having points of view or opinions perspectives. It's about understanding what a point of view is. It's fluid. And then as I keep living and sensing and experiencing, that's a living thing, my point of view, my opinion. But when we're like defending an opinion, that's because there's a sense of a me who's dependent on being right or is afraid of being wrong. Or even more kind of weirdly afraid of ambiguity, of uncertainty, of just how fluid things are. One of the provocative things the Buddha said is no matter how we conceive of anything, of, a, of our child, of our partner, of ourselves, of some political, social issue, no matter how we conceive it, it will always be otherwise. There's no way, I mean, it's great, this 
capacity, especially we humans have for language and for cognition, thinking, it's really great. Obviously, it allows us to connect in all kinds of ways. It allows us to create culture for better and worse. But we get uh, spellbound by our conceptions. We imagine that our thoughts are more than what they are. Like when we have a thought, I'm bad, or you're bad, or I'm good, or you're good. We imagine that that thought means more than what it can mean. Because people aren't actually good or bad. I mean, actions are, can be destructive and unhelpful in the sense of causing harm toward the person or others. Or they could be skillful and helpful because they're healing and supportive of people's well-being. But there isn't a somebody who's good or bad. But just think about how often we have that very strong view. This person is bad. This person is so great. The Dalai Lama, you know, or whatever, whoever fits for, for you. Madonna. I, I guess I, it kind of places me in a certain generation, isn't it? <laughs> so we'll leave it here, but we'll pick it up. But again, just a reminder, we'll have small groups in just a moment, but I'll mention a few things that are coming up. We have a visiting teacher speaking Monday night, tomorrow, Ajahn Brahmali. He's one of our senior Western Buddhist monks. He's been at a monastery in Australia for many years, but he's visiting the Midwest. He's going to be here in person and online Monday, 7 to 8.30. You can just join in um, either way, in person or online. And he's giving a talk on morality, and uh, it has a funny title about the constitutional... Anybody remember the title of the talk? Anyway, he sounds like... I mean, I've heard really good things about him, so if you're free on Monday night, you might want to join in. We're taking a break from our Monday night Buddhist studies, so this was the only night that Ajahn could teach. Um, and then uh, Shelley is leading a, a half-day retreat this coming Saturday, the 4th of February, 1 to 5, Shelley Graff, the other guiding teacher at the center. And then Stacy McClendon is teaching the loving-kindness drop-in group on Friday night, 7 to 8.30, to learn the loving-kindness practices that we often do. And then finally, uh, Jeff Rail and Jack, do you want to say something about the prison group? Yeah, we're leading a prison group at Lando Lakes. Um, it's just for, there's two different groups, so we try to teach uh, basically mindfulness to the inmates. So if anyone's interested in volunteering um, and, and taking part in that, you can contact me and, or Mark, and we'll push in touch with either Jeff or myself. Yeah, and there's often uh, people in our community and the other Buddhist centers in town have been providing mindfulness groups in most of the drivable uh, prisons all around uh, western Wisconsin and Minnesota. And if ever you've been practicing for a while and if ever you want to get involved, you just contact the center and we'll connect you with some of the leaders who are organizing those groups. Good, and then the last thing I want to mention is, uh, most of you know this, but Common Ground operates on Dana. That's our Pali word for generosity. And for 30 years now, believe it or not, we started in 1993, uh, we haven't charged for anything in our programs, including our residential retreats, um, because we want to practice giving away freely the teachings. 
And so what's evolved, as you can imagine, is this beautiful circle of giving and receiving. And we don't talk about money much at the center. We don't do fundraising. Still, we have a building here in the city and a retreat center in western Wisconsin. And all this happens just because people find their own way to relate to the community that makes you feel happy. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. And clearly, some people don't have money to give. And that's another reason we operate this way. Why should that be a reason you can attend or not attend a program, right? So come to as many programs as you want, but the invitation is just to come into relationship so that it makes you happy when you think about your relationship to the center. And you're, you know, however you support the paid staff, the teachers, the buildings, with your good wishes, with your sincere practice, volunteering, contributing money. And our budget's around $400,000 a year, uh, give or take. And uh, yeah, we seem to have survived quite well over the, the decades. So if you want to know more about that, we have stuff, of course, on the website. You can contact the office uh, or just check in with me afterward. Great, so please stay around if you'd like to be in small groups. And uh, I'll give people a chance to leave who don't want to stay for the small groups. Wishing you a good week. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.